0: to the Sabin Distinguished Lecture sponsored by the Psychology Department here at Colorado College. My name is Tomi Ann Roberts. I'm the chair of the Psychology Department, and I'm so delighted to see so many members of the community of Colorado Springs here tonight, and it, it speaks to how far-reaching our speaker's work is. I can't possibly explain what a thrill it is for me to introduce to you one of the great heroes of my field of psychology, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and for the second time no less here at Colorado College. In 2002, he was our commencement speaker and he received an honorary degree, which his wife Isabella told me yesterday that he has framed in his office. That feels very special to me. <laughs> Dr. Csikszentmihalyi's amazing name comes from St. Michael of Csikszentmihalyi, a town in Transylvania, which enables me to always introduce his work to students with the following. If you think the most important export from Transylvania is Dracula, you're dead wrong. It's definitely Mike Csikszentmihalyi. Dracula, of course, dedicated himself to the illicit, to the negative, to the horrible. And indeed, we might say that much of the field of psychology is quite vampire-like, as it has been so concerned with investigating the origins of human suffering and pain. In contrast, Dr. Csikszentmihalyi has devoted his life's work to the study of how people create happy, satisfied, and fulfilled lives. He is, in fact, the world's leading researcher in positive psychology. His interest in his subject grew from his own experiences as a child in Europe during World War II, when he watched the collapse of society around him and the failure of adults to extricate themselves from the chaotic mess that they had created. He resolved to discover how one could live a better, more ordered and fulfilling life. He emigrated to the United States at the age of 22 and received his BA as well as his PhD in psychology from the University of Chicago. Professor Csikszentmihalyi served as both professor and chair of a number of different departments and committees at the University of Chicago between the years of 1971 and 1999, and since then he has been CS and DJ Davidson Professor of Psychology at Claremont Graduate University and the co-director of the wonderful named institute called the Quality of Life Research Center. His list of awards is so long and deep, I can hardly go into them. He has published hundreds of articles and countless books, including Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, and Creativity, Flow and the Psychology of Discovery and Invention, which have been translated into more than 15 languages. Of himself, Professor Csikszentmihalyi has said that he has large doses of the naivete that Goethe thought was important for creativity. He explains to interviewers that he does not understand a lot of things others take for granted, and he's not moved by fads. This makes him a thinker for all of us, not content to speak only to an audience of academics. He writes books that can actually help all of us improve the quality of our lives. Dr. Csikszentmihalyi has written, how we choose what we do and how we approach it will determine whether the sum of our days adds up to a formless blur or to something resembling a work of art. In our search for fulfillment, Professor Csikszentmihalyi is one of our greatest mentors, for he has shown us that happiness is not something that happens. It's something we create, a condition that must be prepared for, cultivated, and defended by each of us. Mike's wife Isabella told me that he's tried to retire several times, but has somehow not managed it. For the architect of Flo, with whom I enjoyed a walk full of joy and wonder through Garden of the Gods yesterday, that didn't surprise me. And it means we here at CC get to once more be the beneficiaries of his continued engagement with questions of how to live a good life. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mike Csikszentmihalyi.
1: Un. And uh, thank you for uh, to you for coming here. Um, oh, can you hear me back there? Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, I will give a kind of bird's eye view of this uh, kind of work that I've been doing for uh, since I got my PhD a long time ago, but actually the reason why I became interested in psychology and I became interested in uh, the good parts of human psychology has been because uh, as a child I was exposed to some of the worst aspects of uh, what people did to each other and how people were affected by the war and that um, uh, two of my older brothers, uh, one died um, uh, towards the end of the war uh, um, when um, all of the students at the University of Budapest where the juniors and seniors uh, were taken out and given old muskets uh, and sent to defend the city from the Russian tanks. And out of 1,400 students of the university who went out there, only seven survived, but not uh, uh, that, that didn't include my brother. The other brother was um, captured on the streets of Budapest um, because they needed uh, Miners in the Ural Mountains of Russia, and so they sent out kind of people to to get Hungarian men or and other occupied countries in Poland and uh, elsewhere and send them to work in the mines. And uh, my older brother. Spent uh, 12 years underground with um, rarely seeing the sun and uh, uh, working with water up to his uh, half of his body trying to extract um, uh, salt from um, underground caverns where they flushed it with water and so forth. And, um, so that was the the um, life I grew up in, um, luckily I I was spared, I was 10 years old when the w- war ended, but I learned that um, from seeing what was happening around me that um, you either li- live the life um, being pushed around by events around you, or you try to to get control as much as possible, and um, uh, many people had really no control to what happened to them, but even so, there is a possibility of um, feeling that you, even though you can't change the situation you are in, but you don't let the situation break you down. And, um, One um, extrapolation from this war experience has been seeing how many adults um, around me after the war really hated what they had to do at work because they didn't have the kind of jobs they were trained to do, but they had to work uh, in circumstances that were really pretty terrible. And the question is, how can you live under those conditions? That was the issue that interested me and got me interested in psychology. Um, So, um, okay, in studying about, um, somehow this thing is jumping. Much okay. One of the people that um, I ended up helping out um, not personally but uh, his successors, but uh, Mazaru Maza- Ibuka, who started Sony Corporation in 1945, he didn't have money, he didn't have uh, capital um, to start a company, but he knew what he wanted to do. And this was um, the beginning of his articles of incorporation of the Sony company. And it says that Sony should become a place where engineers can feel the joy of technological innovation while being aware of their responsibility to society and work to their heart's content. So this was uh, um, Ibuka's um, vision of what Sony should be like and his successors uh, came to, to, to work with me because they wanted to know so how do we work to our heart's content? What it, what does it mean to do that? Um, now, this is a very strange uh, thing. It doesn't seem to be one to move. Does this move? Hmm. Okay. So... Um, Okay. I know. I <laughs> do, I, do I work with them?
0: Um,
1: Maybe. Or oh, oh, they say that that. Uh, that doesn't work either. But I could I could use this thing here. Okay. Well,
0: that's
1: too okay. So the question is fine. Uh, we want uh, to uh, thank you to um, get people to work to their heart's content or live to their heart's content. And how do you do that? And that's what um, we are talking about tonight about. In my work, I try to interview people who seem to be able to do that, to pull off this difficult thing of living in a way that you like to live and that makes sense to you. And one of the people I interviewed was uh, a poet, Mark Strand, who uh, in 1990, I think, became the poet laureate of the United States, which is the uh, greatest distinction a poet can achieve um, in this country. And And I was talking, interviewing him about what made it, how does he feel when he's writing poetry? And this little uh, excerpt from the interview is a very good summary of what I'm going to talk about tonight and what so many people all over the world who liked what they were doing were saying. So, For instance, you are so involved in what you do that you lose uh, the sense of time. You are so enraptured by your doing that you're completely caught up in what you're doing. Uh, You don't think about the past, the future. It's like a present that's kind of stretching out. Um, And the the last four words are only uh, words that few people would say, but the poet can say that what he's doing is making meaning. Um, In other words, he's representing in words the kind of feelings that we all have and we are all trying to understand love, death, uh, time, friendship, all of the things that really matter in life can be understood better through the work of a, a poet. And so that those last, last four or three, three words, those are how the poet gets um, uh, to feel when they are completely enraptured in what they are doing. But, the th- but um, there are many other, In almost every other situation, people say the same kind of thing. For instance, this is um, Joe Gall, who's um, a geneticist and uh, biogeneticist. And he um, describes his work in terms that are not so different from the poet He says, um, well, my work uh, consists in entering this lab, a dark room, and then I look through this microscope and I see this kind of glowing, colorful objects in front of me, which are, of course, uh, components of human cells or uh, animal cells, Uh, but uh, it's like a video game says, it's uh, it's just beautiful. I can sit for it for hours and so forth. And again, the sense of time uh, disappears because we are so caught up with what you are doing and and you feel that you are essentially making meaning out of what you are seeing. The poet makes meaning by putting down words on a piece of paper, but he is trying to understand the meaning of the life of the cells that he's uh, examining. And he is in fact so taken up by his work that a couple years later, after the interview, um, it happened that two women who had worked in his lab got the Nobel Prize in biology um, and medicine. And those two women described their fascination with the work um, and they attributed it to Joe Joe Gold saying that they were interested in biology but they didn't understand how much fun it could be, how much enjoyable it, it was to work Uh, It's like an extended video game in which you try to understand the nature of life. So that um, is uh, one way to um, to understand what I call flow. Norman Augustin, who was the CEO of the major, one of the major aeronautic um, companies in the US, This is what he said in the interview I had with him. He says, you know, I always want to be successful. But my definition of being successful is to contribute something to the world and being happy while doing it. And that really resonated with uh, what I was trying to understand. You have to enjoy what you're doing because you wouldn't be very good... If you didn't, If if you don't enjoy your work, then most of your attention is devoted to making things simpler, to do it faster, to get out of there as soon as possible. But if you really like what you're doing, you have a chance, not any guarantee, but you have a chance to really being successful at it. Um, Michael McCullough, who was one of the, with Steve Jobs was one of the founders of Apple Computers, said say that um, um, he keeps doing things that are interesting. And somehow, strangely, they make also a lot of money. But that is not why I started the company. I did because I really enjoyed what I was doing. Way more important than money. Okay, so you say that's easy to say once you made millions and millions. But um, it's also true, we find this with people who work at very simple jobs who um, uh, could use a lot more of that money that um, McCullough makes. But they also, if they are lucky, they find a way of enjoying what they're doing, and that makes the world completely different. No, there we have that, let's see. Um, so, oh wait, I think there was somebody else, no? Yeah, okay. So these are, this is a kind of a prologue to the, answering the question, what is flow? And one way of saying it is um, the condition, the state in which we feel fully alive. We are fully involved in what we are doing uh, in harmony with the environment around us. And it's something that happens most naturally and often when we are doing something which exists only to provide flow, like singing, dancing, sports, which have no real reason to exist as human activities, except that people who do that enjoy doing it. They feel this kind of feeling. But um, the, the real interesting thing is that it's also something that you can Um, and experience when at work or um, when the family, no, okay. Uh, So for instance, one one of the things uh, uh, that all flow experiences uh, have is that you are focused on a small um, aspect of the reality around you. Um, For instance, the uh, uh, cell biologist was focusing on what he could see through the microscope. Another person I interviewed was um, a woman, Vera Rubin, who is one of the most famous astronomers in the US, and she got this, she had almost the same description of her work as Gald did who looks at the microscope, but she was not looking at the cell, she was looking at galaxies, you know, and the galaxy she she discovered, for instance, that some galaxies rotate clockwise and but others go counterclockwise. And this has been one of her interesting things that She has been spending years trying to understand why this difference in the rotation of galaxies. So whether you're looking at tiny things that are invisible or or enormous things that are, um, you are concentrating on a a limited stimulus field. And that is, um, for instance, uh, chess is one of the flow experiences that I learned when I was, uh, when the war was ending and everything was uh, falling off, Uh, people were dying in the street and uh, buildings collapsing. I was nine years old and uh, an uncle of mine taught me how to play chess. And uh, you know, this is uh, uh, another chess player talking about how concentrated you are and the roof could fall in and you would notice uh, when I was a a kid the houses were collapsing around uh, through the bombing and I wouldn't notice it. And it's uh, uh, an ability or the necessity to focus all your attention on what you're doing and that's... uh, can be um, one way uh, that we could describe that. Um, now, maybe this will work. Yeah. Does it work? Yeah, thank you. Now I I, I see this, this is working. Thank you. Um, uh, but but it works only in, in uh, backwards <laughs> well oh hold oh no. okay it uh, uh, doesn't want to go beyond a certain point can you make it How go otherwise okay thank you Okay,
0: Okay. so it's this one, not this one. one. Okay. This one. one.
1: Thank you. Okay, so there comes a time when the concentration is so deep that you are not thinking anymore of, that you are doing something and thinking about doing it, but you're doing it spontaneously, almost automatically. And here is one other, activity that I like besides chess, and that's rock climbing. And uh, I climbed some around here, but mostly up in Wyoming in the Tetons. And this is um, a well-known rock climber that I interviewed. And um, he's up, going up Yosemite uh, there. And he says, you know, you are so involved in doing this thing that after a while you are not thinking that you are climbing the rock. You are just kind of oozing up, trying to find the the little nubbins of rock that will allow you to go up a few inches here, a few inches there. But it's um, it becomes like. uh, like you are dancing with the rock, you know, you are both involved in this in this climb. Um, you are in harmony with something else that you are part of. And that's all of these flow experiences, whether it's music or chess or science, you are part of something that you feel in harmony either intellectually, cognitively or emotionally, you are part of. And that's an important aspect here. And once you're in that situation, you're not worried about failing. Um, And here is, for instance, uh, one of my students, uh, uh, Susan Jackson, wrote a book about uh, flow in sports, and I, I was involved in that too. And uh, she interviewed. Uh, she's from Australia, and interviewed these um, cyclists um, who participate in the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, and so forth. And as you see, I mean, you are pretty um, crowded in this peloton there, and you uh, you could be pushed and uh, uh, fell, but um, as these people say, you know, when you are involved in this activity, you are not worried about failure. Um, You are ready for everything, and you don't uh, worry about uh, possibilities that uh, would hurt you. Of course, you better be very good before you you do that, because uh, one of my students has, for instance, uh, um, followed a group of um, kayakers, white water kayakers, um, where several people died or drowned, uh, uh, and uh, it, it was clear that these people ended up thinking, well, well, this is just water, I, I can cope with it, I, it's not a problem. But then when they got caught in a bad uh, uh, current and whirlpool, they, they would turn over and, and drown. Um, so that um, that's uh, a dangerous thing to do until you master the skill and uh, you, um, for instance, the rock climbers, um, there have been very few fatal accidents there because a climber can uh, slowly develop to the point where he can do this um, apparently impossible things but he knows what he's doing or she knows what she's doing because um, eventually uh, it becomes reasonable. When those three conditions are present, you start forgetting yourself as a person with having a job or having something to do. And uh, one of the jobs that I started um, studying was surgery, because I heard so much about surgeons who uh, were completely um, enamored of their job. They they loved it, and if their wife succeeded in getting them to a nice beach in Acapulco or something, um, they stayed on the beach for a day or two, and then they volunteered in the local hospital to do surgery, and uh, that, um, and this is one of the surgeons we studied and says, um, you are tired, your feet ache, but um, you are only aware of how your hand is moving, the, the scalpel cutting, uh, and making sure that you are not uh, cutting an artery or taking a piece out of the heart of the person uh, you are operating on. And that, that is a, an important part of the surgeon. Love of the job that they they can get completely involved. They are responsible for, uh, in this case, not for their own life like the rock climber, but they are a higher responsibility, namely for another person. You you don't want to kill a person as you are doing this, and um, then time disappears uh, as a. Uh, normal, uh, sequential kind of linear thing. This is a uh, 1970s disco dancing. Now this doesn't exist probably anymore. But um, and this dancer describes how it feels to get involved in the dance and says after you stop. Um, it looks like the time had passed very quickly. See, it's one o'clock in the morning, and as I say, it should be maybe 11 in the evening. or when, But um, while you are dancing, you don't notice the time. It uh, seems, actually, to stretch out. We interviewed, for instance, uh, ice skaters um, who do this, um, Soldiers, uh whatever these jumps um, in the air and they land on this uh, on the ice uh, skates and and they say that when they do one of these um, triple lots of uh, salchus in the air, they notice everything happening around and it seems like it takes half an hour and and it's just a few seconds. So time is adapting to yourself rather than becoming a, a kind of a, the 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, and it's all the same. Um, time is very different when you are doing this kind of thing. Um, and when all of those conditions are present, then what you're doing becomes autotelic, auto These are two Greek words, auto means self and telos means uh, goal in Greece. And so what what autotelic means is that the activity is its own goal. You are not doing it for some other reason like winning the game or winning a, a purse or becoming famous or whatever. Or getting money—it's—it's it's because you like to do it, and um, um, one of the guys I interviewed is a was a well-known composer who spent a lot of time training uh, young children to play uh, or in the orchestra, and um, he he was saying. To me, this is what he says to his students, he says, do it for the satisfaction. Uh, this is, don't expect to make money, don't expect fame or a pat on the back, don't expect a damn thing, do it because you love it. Now, a surgeon makes money and um, and gets reputation from it, and uh, yet you find that if they don't get flow from it, their activity, they are in trouble. I I work with many surgeons who burned up at age 40 by in the early 40s because uh, they couldn't really enjoy the work and no matter how much money they got, um, either they They were scared of making a mistake, or they did make mistakes, and then they had to retire for that. But those who stayed and at age 50 and 60 were still good surgeons, they all would have subscribed to this. Uh, They didn't do it for the money, they didn't do it for fame. They just thought it was a great way of showing what they could do to themselves, and, and so. Um, now, so these six conditions uh, are generally there when a person is in flow, that is when a person is so involved in what they're doing that they want to do it, that it's autotelic. But there are certain conditions that facilitate that, and one of them is knowing what you have to do next uh, all the time, not the the ult- the ultimate goal, but like this climber here, you see the cars parked down uh, the lower left hand kind. that's where you park your car when you go up Yosemite, and then um, he. He's uh, explaining that uh, you know each move opens up um, some choices for the next move and you have to choose which one will be not too high so that you extend yourself too much and get tired. They're not too low because then you have to just go up a few inches at a time. So you have to choose what is the best next move. And it's, uh, the rock in a sense tells you what, what the options are and you have to choose one of those options. And that becomes, your goal now is to make up to the next hold or the next foothold and so forth. So that's, that's uh, the whole, climb, which may take hours or a whole day, it's made up of hundreds and hundreds of these decisions of what's the next move, okay? And uh, that is, uh, and there is immediate, you get information that you did the right thing or the wrong thing. Of course, if the climber makes the wrong move, then the feedback is that he falls down. Uh, usually, the feedback is not so dangerous, but uh, for instance, uh, Duke Ellington in this interview says that uh, um, he, his reward in composing music is that he can, can, could get immediate feedback immediate knowledge of how good his idea had been because he worked in a room next door putting notes on a piece of paper on the staff and then when he had a page filled up he would come to this room where these uh, players were waiting for him and he would show them the music and they played and Duke Ellington listened and said, yeah, okay, that's what I want to do, or said, no, this doesn't work, and went back and started working. So that's the feedback for Duke Ellington, but almost every activity that is enjoyable gives you feedback. A tennis player gets feedback from seeing whether the ball went in the place he wanted to, to hit it. A singer gets, or a musician gets feedback from hearing the sound Um, they are making. uh, The surgeon gets immediate feedback by seeing that there is no blood in the cavity where he's cutting, and so he hasn't severed an artery in doing the work, so um, feedback is very important. Um, And then that there is a balance between what needs to be done and what you can do. And this is uh, in many ways um, the way we measure flow essentially is by looking at the uh, ratio of challenges to skills in an activity. When the challenges are very high and the skills are low, you feel anxious. When the skills are high and the challenges are low, you feel bored. But in between these two um, dimensions, there is a kind of sweet spot on the diagonal where you can experience flow, where the two are in balance, the challenges and skills. And for instance, suppose that you start an activity down at A, where the letter A is, because you don't have any skills in it and you take very s- small challenges then. But after a while, if you are there, you, your skills improve. And so you begin to be bored by that activity and at that point, there are two choices. Either you say this is boring and quit, or you say, well, what happens if I try something harder in this activity, um, more challenging? And then you realize that, wow, you are back into that flow uh, channel. Now, you may be in that area for a while, but then you, like, let's say that, kayak, whitewater kayaker, you say, because you know how to paddle, you say, oh, now I, I can do anything, and goes down in, in a really uh, turbulent waters, and the challenge suddenly goes up, and you have uh, your skills are no longer enough to perform with this kind of concentrated uh conscious way, uh, feeling in control, you're out of control. Again, the choice is saying, I had enough of this thing, I will quit, or you say, let me go back to an easier part and you go down back to see. But the ideal thing is what, that you say, oh, okay, so I need more skills to, to enjoy this and then you are back into flow. Now any activity that is worth doing in many ways is made up of hundreds of these steps. Whether you are learning music or skiing or climbing or singing uh, or playing tennis, whatever produces flow in your life, probably goes up these uh, steps until you uh, end up on a very high level of skill and challenge, um, which would be way up in the ceiling there. But uh, it is a, a kind of a, a natural progression, and this is also why flow is so interesting to people who are trying to teach something to young people, whether you are a teacher and your students don't like the subject that you are teaching, how can you get them in that area where they feel in control and they can begin to enjoy it and then inc- increase their skill as the challenge increases? Or whether you are um, um CEO of a company who wants uh, the workers to be more involved in what they are doing. Um, um, a couple of years ago, I was invited by the CEO of a company, um, Korean company. If I had a TV screen here. Chances are that it's a LG screen. It's one of the major manufacturers of television screens with over a quarter million workers. And um, um, so the CEO called me and I, I said I couldn't make it because it's too long a trip back to Seoul and so forth. Finally, he did send two of his managers to, Uh, who called me up from the Los Angeles airport and said our boss sent us to see if you would talk to us and we could talk to you and I said well okay as as long as you're here come over. (laughs) Um, They came and they they introduced themselves and the the senior member of these two uh, men delegation took out a copy of Flo in Korean, and it was all underlined, and had things sticking out, uh, post-its sticking out. And he said, our boss wants you to know that he read the Bible six times, but he read flow seven times. (laughs) So I said, all right. So I went there, and he, um, after I talked to about 500 of his top people in the company, you know, um, talking more or less about these issues here. Then he showed me the uh, books of the company, and um, uh, the company started 40 years ago, and it has increased sales, and uh, the income has been going up like this for 40 years. However, the uh, profits of the company had been going up for about 40 years, 30 years, and then started going down, the profits. And uh, then he showed the point 10 years before we we talked, talking, and there the profits went up again, and he pointed to the inflection points where they started going up and said, that's where we introduced flow, in our management system, and since then, we made 6.5 billion dollars more than expected. And uh, I didn't have the uh, kind of presence of mind to say, "Oh, could you get 1% of, uh, one percent of one?" But 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 it was pleasant to know that you know this idea, which flow which started out to understand you know the way in which people could live a, le, a better life despite the horrors of war and so forth, how that knowledge actually can help uh, in ways that I hadn't expected or planned that they may help. And there are many many studies, studies like that where you find that, Um, using flow in uh, uh, an institutional context does cut down on turnover, on absenteeism, on um, low involvement of workers and so forth. And it's kind of interesting to see how that actually does work. Um, So we have a way of measuring flow, uh, which I developed in uh, uh, Chicago when I was still teaching there oh, a good 30 years ago. And it's a, a very simple system, I give people an electronic pager and then we send signals uh, every two hours at random time during the day. and. Uh, uh, now we have apps and cell phones which can be used, but the, uh, this work was started with paper and pencil. Whenever the beepers signaled, you took out a little booklet and you marked down, you wrote down where you were, what you were doing, how you felt, how happy you were, how strong you felt, how concentrated you were, and then we asked the people to say on a 10-point scale how many challenges they had uh, uh, and how many skills they, they felt they had at that moment when the beeper signaled. And you can imagine for each person, there is an average. In, that's the central point in that kind of uh, figure there. That would be the average skill, the average challenge that a person reported during the week. Uh, Because we do this for a week, each person has 50 or more responses. And um, once you know what the central point is, you can predict when the person is in flow, because it will be above average skill, above average challenge usually. And, and, and that's when they d- report also being happy, concentrated, alert, strong, and so forth. And uh, then, uh, besides that, control is when people report their skills to be high and the challenge is not so high. Um, if you, uh, uh, that's, that's a very good place to be actually, but it's not as exciting as flow. Then relaxation is high skill, low challenges. Uh, boredom is um, middle skills and no challenges. apathy is uh, low skill, low challenge. Uh, when the challenge goes up and the skills still low, you feel worried. When the skills are still low but the challenges are high, you feel anxiety. And uh, when um, the skills are middle, uh, middling but challenges are high, that's arousal. And that's also a good place because all you have to do to enter flow now from arousal is to increase your skills a little bit. From anxiety, the distance to flow is a little too far. And usually people feel they can't develop their skills in time to, to move there. So this is the way it looks like. And this is what people would be typically doing. So, uh, the high challenge, high skill is favorite activity, hobby, uh, uh, love relation, romantic relationship, and work for some people. Not for many, but for work can be flow. So that's what happens in everyday life and flow. Control. One of the things that uh, was is reassuring that many, most people feel in control when they are driving. Um, now if suddenly there is a snowstorm or uh, uh, some other external impediment, instead of control you start feeling anxious or worried because you don't have the skills if you are here, here, of course, you have the skills, because you, you know how to do that in uh, the winter. And work, again, is quite often in control. Relaxation is eating, reading, conversation. Uh, boredom, again, work can be boring, of course. Household chores are uh, often boring. Now, the opposite of flow is apathy. And this is very often when people watch TV or when they sit in the bathroom or feel uh, there's nothing to do and they they can't use their skills. Worry, again, work is often in worry. Family problems, hassles at work or uh, whatever, where the challenges are higher than your ability, and then of course, anxiety, sudden threats, um, your children are not home when they're supposed to be, or your work uh, is going badly um, and then uh, that uh, arousal is uh, new tasks, things that you are learning to do. And again, work. As you see, work is one of the most multifaceted activity in life. It can be anything, it can be flow, it can be control, it can be boring, it can be worrisome, it can be anxiety. Um, Almost everything uh, we at work could be one or the other. And of course, my interest in this work, in uh, my research, is to understand how work can move up to flow as often as possible. What, what is required to make it um, something that people enjoy doing and feel that it's uh, the best. And the surgeons are lucky because for them, if you are a good surgeon, uh, your work is is a source of flow, and and some jobs are very lend themselves to flow, but um, others, uh, a researcher usually is in, uh, in flow. I um, interviewed uh, uh, one of the biologist who's sitting on the Nobel Prize committee in Sweden. And he's also a tumor biologist. He studies uh, how tumors can turn into cancer and what can you do to prevent that. And um, when I asked him how to describe how his work goes, and he got this faraway look in his eyes, and he says, well, I feel like a deer gambling in a meadow, jumping up and down a meadow. That's that's how he feels at work. And uh, that is uh, a lucky person, but it also takes a while to, it's possible to achieve that. And that's, I think, an important thing for as psychologists to try to understand and make more part of the life. Not only work but also family life. It's family life tends to be unfortunately often on the bottom there. Relaxing maybe but it's also boring and ap- apathy and and then with occasional worry and anxiety injected. Um, that, uh, that is uh, a big issue, and I think what we n- need to know is how to, to help on that as psychologists. Now, this is for those of you who are interested in a brain system, and um, a group of Swedish, Swedish psychologists have studied flow from the, while also looking at the fMRI and they discovered that uh, people who are often in flow or, and especially when they are in flow, but even when they are not in flow, tend to produce dopamine from the top of that organ, the Purple organ in the middle is called the striatum, and the dopamine that is released on, from the top and the caudal, the tail, and goes to areas of the brain where you have to concentrate, be fully uh, ready to jump to do things that are difficult and where you persevere at work. So, essentially, whereas the ventral area below, uh, the underneath part and the, of the striatum produces dopamine that goes to the pleasure centers of the brain and you experience, you, you feel good Dopamine makes us feel good wherever it goes in the brain. But the point is that people in flow seem to have developed the ability to feel really good neurologically uh, rewarded when they're doing something difficult and challenging. So this is one of the things that uh, we have found this is another study I did with um, a couple of students, actually, where, uh, which is going back to my roots, it's chess, um, chess playing. So uh, we looked at people who played computer chess, and um, what you find in the middle, the zero point in the middle is when the two players have the same rating. There's there's no difference in their ability. You know, chess players are rated very... um, A a really good player is 2200 rating, a beginning player is 50 or 100. But um, the rating changes as a result of your winning or losing. And depending on whether uh, uh, what the rating of your opponent was, if you are winning against somebody with a low rating, you don't advance much, your rating stays the same more or less. But if you beat a very good player, your rating jumps up. So here we analyzed um, a couple thousand games from around the world because computer, we got a computer uh, chess uh, um, uh, group to agree to um, ask the people who played computer chess in their under uh, site to um, tell us how they felt after each game they played. And so the enjoyment they report is on that vertical. The that arc shows that the enjoyment is of a game is highest where the opponent is two hundred and sixty-two points better than you are. And at that point, the, the the graph below shows that your um, uh, the probability of winning there is for you is like twenty percent, because the the at zero point on the upper curve at zero point you have a fifty percent chance of winning. When you have almost 100% chance of winning, your enjoyment, the upper arc, your enjoyment is very low. You don't enjoy, it even even though you are winning, it's not fun. Uh, so the, the, you get fun in chess when you're playing against somebody who's a little bit better than you. About, uh, Actually, 260 points, that's quite a, a bit. But um, if you, whether you win or lose against a better player, you still feel good. Better, whereas whether you win or lose against somebody who's worse than you, you don't enjoy it at all. So that that's um, some of the stuff we have been doing. Um, to... Um, uh, Fine, and I think that's it. So we have time maybe for some questions. I don't know. I'm sorry I spoke too long, so, but uh, no, okay.
0: Ah, I'm going to pass this around for questions. I saw someone's hand here. Thank you. Is there a training effect available so that people get into flow more and produce more of that receptor for the dopamine on the top part of the striatus?
1: Yeah, well, there are two answers to that. One is that uh, what is true for flow has been described and the best applications are that of people who take this general model and understand what they are doing and they translate that general model into what they are teaching or trying to achieve, okay? Because um, I don't know enough about music or about um, most other things actually, to be able to say how to produce flow in that activity. But anybody who knows that activity uh, should know, and if they know the theory, they can say, okay, this is how I, that's what, for instance, I never myself felt I could help a company for making the company more Flow-like, but all of the good stories that I hear and have been published are by people who work in those companies and say, "Well, how does this model apply to what I'm doing or to what our company is doing?" And if they spend a little time thinking and start changing little things here and there, they they can uh, they can adopt this. One of my students, for instance, uh, this is a story that uh, I, I like, it's been published also. The story was, um, appeared in um, a business magazine called Fast Company uh, about two years ago, I think. Um, it's about the company in Sweden where uh, it's called Green Cargo, and it's a big, big company that is transporting iron ore from the north, the mountains in Sweden, down to Göteborg and so forth, where they have the ref- refineries and they can make steel and out of it, and and that's a national. Um, priority to be able to transport the iron from north to south, even though the company that has been transporting the iron has been losing money for 125 years. Every year, red, more and more red. But the Swedish government uh, realized that this was too important for the rest of the country not to um, to have this uh, transportation, and so they um, they uh, allocated taxpayer money uh, every year to cover the uh, shortfall of Green Cargo, which is the name of the company. And so one uh, young man who studied with me, uh, a Swede- Swedish guy, Um, ended up being the human resource person at Green Cargo about uh, seven years ago, I think, or eight years ago. And um, there he convinced the CEO of the company to apply flow to the company. And um, they did a fairly simple but very effective way. And um, after two years of this, the company made its first profit, and ever since has been in the in uh, not in the red but in black, um, and that. But you know, I couldn't have done that, uh, not knowing uh, how the company worked and so forth and so. But um, uh, the idea was. Really very simple uh, you know and uh, and it worked and that can be done um, there is a, again I, I don't know anything about music unfortunately i I know about music, but I don't play any music but um, this has been flow has been used extensively in Germany, Austria and also Scandinavia for teaching music. And there are, uh, uh, there is a famous violinist and an oboe player in Germany who have been teaching young people all around the world uh, and uh, using flow as, as their, their way of uh, getting the students involved. And so it's, um, A lot of people find this out uh, spontaneously, but um, not always, and I had lunch once in Manhattan with uh, a violinist, uh, uh, not Yasha Reifetz, but Isaac Perlman, who um, was playing in Carnegie Hall, and uh, we had lunch, and suddenly his face went kind of Uh, like this, and he was eating fish, and I said, is something wrong with your fish? And he said, no. I said, but something is wrong. He said, yeah, it's the (laughs) Uh, F-flat. And apparently the air conditioner was making a noise. And he said, every time I hear F-flat, I get sick. And um, so that is some kind of a, a strange combination in the brain that made him from a child very sensitive to sound, very discriminating in sound. Things that wouldn't bother most people, bother him, some notes or some uh, uh, some sounds that we don't pay attention, they love. Uh, So, People like that can develop kind of flow around whatever gifts they have. And if they're lucky and the parents support them and they have teachers, then they can make a living for themselves where which is tailor-made to their own physiology, to their own uh, needs in a sense. But most of us, Unfortunately, don't have that. We have to learn what really uh, fits our body, so to speak, to our nervous system, and and uh, it may take very long to discover it. And unless we are helped, and I think uh, I think parents, one of the main jobs of parents is to pay attention to what the children are interested in and figure out how to build on it. What are the strengths that your child has and try to build on that, expose them to, to um, possible uh, learning in that area and so forth And um, and if you're lucky, the child will start moving by themselves. I mean, once you discover that you love to do something, you, you do it on your own, but uh, very often you are not exposed to en- enough op- opportunities to discover what you really like to do.
0: uh, Thank you for giving such a great talk. Um, I have a a question about um, kind of what you addressed at the end of that answer
1: around um, how many flow activities are realistic across the lifespan. Um, It seems like it takes a really long time to build uh, the skill and to find that flow within like a few activities. Um, And someone who maybe is in older
0: adulthood or has an acquired disability, where some of those skills and what they can accomplish changes throughout the lifespan. I'm curious if uh, people
1: can adapt and really, um, as they change in their function and within their body, um, if those activities change and they can achieve the same state of flow that maybe they had when they were working earlier on. Yeah, well, yeah, it's true that for instance, uh, physical activities are lovely venues for flow. And we all as children love to run, jump, throw the ball and catch the ball and so forth. Then later uh, we like to play in team sports and and compete in athletic events. But then there is a uh, point at which your skills don't improve anymore. In fact, they start decreasing. And then um, if you are not ready to change your skill set to something that will uh, allow you to continue developing skills in a new area, then you are in trouble. Um, Many people, for instance in athletics, turn, become coaches, they become commentators on the radio or TV about about the sport they like, or um, they work in athletic associations as administrators, but that's not the same thing. I mean, they enjoy it to a certain extent, but it's not as much flow as actually practicing it. On the other hand, there are other activities that you don't get tired of. Uh, 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 Many of the art forms are very good for that. I mean, musicians, painters, sculptors can continue doing that in their 80s, some in their 90s, and so forth. Uh, Also, research scientists, I interviewed uh, Linus Pauling for instance when he was uh, 89 and he was uh, three years from the end of his life. By then he had two Nobel Prizes, one in chemistry and one in peace. He got the peace prize. But in his late, uh, you know, early, uh, late 80s, he was still like, seven-year-old kid, he couldn't stand still. He was so excited about what he had read or done in the lab or what his students were doing or what, that he was uh, uh, obviously, uh, you know, deep into flow uh, all his life until he died. And uh, that, uh, that is a possibility in science, art, or um, doing good for people, um, philanthropies, or, or helping people around your neighborhood, and so forth, and playing with your grandchildren, etc. Can there is, luckily, there are many, many ways of experiencing flow.
0: We have another question? That was actually very similar to the question. OK, anyone else? Just curious, um, most of the examples have been positive examples of, of flow and states of flow in different I- examples. But I think about how can flow actually perpetuate negative
1: perceptions, of negative behaviors. For example, um, thinking in a school setting, a bully who experiences um, skill and development, and it's a challenge to sort of antagonize other students. So what's been the research around the 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 reverse of of positive flow, but, but thinking about flow in a different way. Yeah, I should say I don't know if I understood your question completely because my hearing is not as good as I uh, should be. But but uh, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not saying that flow is good uh, forever. And that all all activities that produce flow are good there uh, for instance, I worked with veterans coming back from the Korean War who felt that living a civilian life was enormously boring compared to being on the front lines where you risk your life, but you also Were in control of your life in a way that you weren't when you worked in a factory and so forth. So you you can find flow that way. You can find flow. Uh, We had, for instance, uh, one of our first kind of applied research was um, in a town in the northwest. where there suddenly were all kinds of uh, acts of um, arson, vandalism, arson, committed by teenagers. And the police department there asked me to come and try to figure out what, what was going on. And you know, talking to these kids uh, was really eye-opening, you know, what... One of them, for instance, let's say, young uh, 14-year-old boy, um, and I ask him, you know, so could you tell me why you blew up the garage of your neighbors? And he says, well, you know, uh, I I feel there's nothing really very interesting at school. Um, there is, uh, Uh, Nothing I feel that I enjoy, but then I realized that first by blowing things up in gopher holes and stuff, I realized that how much fun it was to put a a time bomb in a, a door of a garage and then go on a hill across a pair of binoculars and wait for the neighbor to come, and when he was in front of the garage I could push this button and the garage blew up and the neighbor you know, comes out of the car trembling and so forth and said, you know, you don't, uh, that, that's a kind of feeling that I could never have in my normal life. So it's, it's clear that there are things that produce flow which are not good for either for the person or for society. And that, but so it's interesting because um, Plato wrote, uh, the Greek philosopher, 2,600 years ago, I think, more or less. He wrote in uh, the Republic um, that um, the most, the most important things for grown-ups to learn is to teach young people to find pleasure in the right things you know and that uh when you think about it it's 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 true and it's not it, it we still haven't learned how to do that um, the village of Chicks and where my ancestors came from has a beautiful school uh, up in the mountains of transylvania and and there's a gate to the entrance of the yard, schoolyard, and on the gate is carved in the wood um, sentence from the Roman philosopher Cicero, which says that the roots of knowledge are bitter, but its fruits are sweet. And that was the motto of the educational system I, I came from and probably you came from, namely that we say, yeah, it's bitter, it's, it's, it's bad, but it's good for you later. The fruits will be sweet. So put up with the bitterness because it will be good later. And that's to a certain extent it's true, but actually uh, good teachers turn out to be able to make knowledge not bitter even at the beginning, you know? You you find ways of presenting the material in a way that it's uh, interesting uh, uh, to the child. That's one of the strengths of, for instance, the Montessori schools that um, I think Maria Montessori, who was a, Doctor, a physician, the first Italian physician, a modern physician who had a degree from university. She noticed how, in the poor neighborhoods in the slums of Rome, the children grew up uh, dropping out of school by third grade and primary after and they never went they never really learned to read write this is in the late 1800s and so she uh, she was challenged by that to say how can we make education enjoyable and i think when done well the montessori system is pretty good at uh, finding out what kids uh, like and presenting the material in a way they can understand. I went to I went to Suri school when I was young in my 60s, uh, uh, and and uh, the uh, I looked around the school and there was a little kid, uh, um, a preschooler, a boy, who was assigned to show me around. And uh, in one corner of one of the rooms, there was this very elaborate stick building, kind of a big uh, square, uh, all with sticks uh, connected to each other. And I asked the kid, what is this for? And he said, oh, that's to extract cube roots. (laughs) And they said, cube roots, I I barely know square roots, but cube roots, and he said, yeah, you see, and then he explains to me the the way cube roots work by using the sticks and the squares that you build with three-dimensional squares that, cubes that they had built. So, uh, and the kid loved to do that, you know, he was, enjoying it, showing off also, but, but uh, it was impressive. Uh, you can get that kind of learning if you present it in a way that doesn't assume that learning is bitter, it's going to be bitter.
0: I'm going to draw us to a close and say that I'm pretty sure we all enjoyed this very much. And thank you so much, Professor Csikszentmihalyi.